At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, Reveal, stories with purpose as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. Amen. Good morning, Woodside. How are you today? Awesome. Uh, I love it. 9 a.m. service. You guys are lively and ready to go. And uh, it's exciting to be able to gather together and worship. I'm seeing uh, each week faces that I haven't seen uh, before or since uh, quarantine. And if you're joining us online as well, I was on there just before the service uh, was started, and I was uh, seeing who was jumping on with us online as well. So thanks for joining us, whether in your homes today, uh, for whatever reason, or here uh, live with us today. We're excited to be able to worship with you and open up the Word of God together. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 16, Luke 16 uh, is where we're going to be uh, today as we continue... Uh, our series on the parables, and today actually is our last week as we land the plane on this series that's called Revealed Stories with Purpose. And we've been over the last number of weeks looking at different parables. There's so many. We haven't looked at all of them, but many of them within Luke, between chapters 8 and now uh, here in chapter 16 today. And we've been looking at many different topics. As Jesus shared stories, as he shared parables, that parables aren't just some story that Jesus would tell, but it's a, a story with a purpose. That in, in the whole scheme of him sharing these parables, there was something that was to be revealed. And as we'll see today, as we see in often a lot of the parables, in one foul swoop, in, in one's telling of a story, Jesus would share and condemn, or should I say, call out a group of the religious elite or those who were opposing him, and in the same breath, in the same story, while he's calling out one group, he's inviting another group, actually inviting all who have ears to hear to listen and respond to the word of God and him as Jesus King and Messiah. So he was revealing the kingdom all the while condemning the religious elite of that day who were uh, coming after Jesus and not excited about the way that Jesus was doing uh, ministry. And, and as we look at the parable today, it reminded me of a number of different movies that I've watched. I don't know about you, but I love a good underdog story. Anybody else? Like, doesn't that make a great movie like an underdog story? It makes it thrilling that at the end, Many times, obviously, it's cheesy, and you know the underdog is going to win, but still, it feels good that they're going to win, right? I mean, uh, many times, it comes with thrill. Sometimes, it's exciting that you didn't see it coming, and that's the beauty of many times the parables, that the winner's the loser, the loser's the winner in the whole grand scheme of things, and many times, underdog stories are our favorite, because oftentimes, they're stories of reversal, of reversal, and today we're going to see it's a parable of great reversal. And when the stories of reversal, whether it's a movie, a story, whatever we experience, it's amazing because it changes what we expected to happen in the grand scheme of the story. So how many people in the room, maybe you're too young for this, cheered and we celebrated when Rocky beats Apollo Creed, right? I mean, it's like, yes, that's unbelievable. It's amazing. And I don't know, probably not many here, but cheer when Auburn runs back a missing field goal uh, attempt by Alabama and upsets their rivalry. It's amazing, right? A couple fans. And that's why Michigan State cheers every time they beat Michigan, right? Just kidding. Joke. Sorry. Uh, that one flopped a little bit. Won't use it in the next service, right? Um, 
The little brother beats the big brother. I'm kidding. I like Michigan State and Michigan. It's all good, right? But stories of reversal are amazing, and they speak to our heart, and I think we'll see the same today in the parable uh, that we see. And maybe there's some tension here that there's a great reversal even in our own thinking, in our own worldview, and the way we see God. Maybe someone watching today views God one way, and there's going to be a great reversal of the way in which that they see him. Perhaps uh, many who think that they're spiritually okay, they're faithfully religious, and even blessed might find out that there's a great reversal to come in the kingdom of God. And today, we look at the parable uh, as we look at this passage in the Gospel of Luke. And this parable, like many others, as we look at it and we've studied, has an unexpected twist at the end. I said last week, there's this reveal where at one point, the script is flipped and all of a sudden, they're like, wait a minute, the Samaritan can never be the good guy, right? I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't happen, right? And we see the same thing here uh, today that Jesus is revealing bits and pieces about the kingdom of God all the while he's calling out a religious group. Now, I want to caution us a little bit specifically with this parable. I want us to caution, excuse me, I want us to caution at looking at this parable as a view or a picture of what is to come in the afterlife. It's a story of Lazarus and the rich man, and one ends up someplace and one ends up the other place. I don't want to reveal the whole story yet, but I, don't, I want to caution that Jesus' intention in sharing the parable wasn't to express what it's going to or what it's going to look like one day when we all die. He has a specific purpose in mind in sharing this story. And, and uh, there's, this isn't systematic theology. This isn't like I'm teaching on every little nuance of this and that. No, there's a definite purpose. So there's some things left out. What's important is in the story by Jesus so that we can get exactly what he wants us to hear. So like many of these, Jesus is experiencing some back and forth with this group called the Pharisees, and he's, he's confronting them. And, the, and they're the Jewish religious elite. They're the conservatives of their day. They're the people that followed the law to its nth degree, so much so that they wanted to follow the law that they made other laws to make sure they didn't break the law. So these guys are the who's who of um, the, the, the Bible people in their day, but at the same time, these are the hypocrites of their day. These are the people that Jesus calls whitewashed tombs. He's the people who calls a brought of vipers. He's the, these are the people that Jesus says, you hypocrites, right? And right before this, in verses uh, 13 through 15, chapter 16, Jesus is teaching on money, and that is the context of this parable, and he's teaching on money, and right after Jesus says that famous line, you can't serve God and money, two masters, it says that these individuals, the Pharisees, ridiculed Jesus for this teaching. These were the self-righteous, self-justified people, but Jesus has something to share with them, and I think he has something to reveal for us us as well when he's going to share with us. And this is what we want to see today in our text is that real faith obeys the word of God. Real faith obeys the word of God. It doesn't just know the word of God. It doesn't just know all the ins and outs. You can have all the Bible knowledge you want, but that doesn't mean you are a Jesus follower with authentic real faith. Real and authentic faith comes from obedience or it's shown proof in obedience. So Let's look in verse 19, and the first thing we're going to see is that our final destiny is a result of our belief. Look what it says in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted uh, subtitiously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores 
who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried up by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he, uh, in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his like uh, manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So, so the first thing we see is that our final destiny is a result of our belief. And what we believe is actually what we do. And what we believe in this life is translated into our f- future condition with God all uh, for eternity with him, right? This is the content. Jesus is dealing, uh, the context. Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders of his day, and he's responding to them, specifically the Pharisees, who call, uh, he calls lovers of money. That these people, while they seemed religious, really their heart, as Jesus always does, he gets to the disposition of your heart. It's not just about what our hands do in this lifetime, it's about who we are in our heart that God sees all of the time. And Jesus constantly preached this day in and day out. And man, they believed that they were supremely religious, superior to all the people around them. Jesus called them out last week. Pastor Alex shared uh, about two people that approached God, and one beat his chest and said, Father, forgive me, a sinner, have mercy on me. The other looked down and says, man, I'm glad I'm not like that person. I'm glad that there was this haughty spirit about them, and they were rich, and they were affluent, and self-righteous, and religious legalists, and superior to everyone else. So these guys were confident that they were in. They're the in crowd. These are the people, and I've shared with this with our, our church many other times. One of the things that we as followers of Jesus that call ourselves the Bible people need to make sure that we pay attention to in the scriptures, find me a place. The harshest words that Jesus ever shared with anyone in his lifetime was with religious people. Those that were far off and sinful, he was the most gracious with. That I think we should maybe Side note, free from the message. Maybe take that posture in our own way of thinking and walking in this earth. And check our hearts and spirits. That we're not caught up in religiosity and not relationship and authenticity of our own heart. So Jesus tells a story in response about a rich man, possibly a Pharisee, probably in the application of all that we're seeing here. And this rich man, he wore wore very fine clothing. Purple was a sign of wealth and and the fabric was a sign that they were rich and they were well off. So he wears expensive clothing He eats outlandish food, that he has everything at his disposal. This is a depiction of a self-reliant, self-indulgent, superior to everyone else human being. This is who Jesus is talking about and confronting those who are confronting him. Now, the other guy in the story is a poor man. His name's Lazarus. Now, I will say, some people believe this is not even a parable because this is the only place in all the parables that Jesus uses names. 
Many times it's a master and servants or whatever it may be. This is the only time where he calls a guy by the name of Lazarus, who's actually one of his close friends, and Abraham, who's a significant person in the, in the Jewish belief system, a father in their a patriarch. So, I mean, it's many people, but we do believe it is a parable. I think he's getting a point across. He doesn't even have a place to live, not a fine home. So, in essence, he was probably dumped outside of the gate of a rich man, hoping that mercy would be shown to him, but mercy is not shown at all. The poor man's condition is actually quite heartbreaking. I mean, not only is he poor, he doesn't have anything. He's at the gates of rich man's estate hoping for just crumbs. Like, if I could just get the crumbs from your table. I mean, you're eating outlandish, amazing meals. If I could just get a little bit of the crumbs, the morsels that are falling off your table, I'll be okay. He's stuck there, dumped at the end of the gate, covered in painful sores. And make matters worse, dogs would come by and lick his sores. You see the picture that Jesus is painting? would make him ceremonially unclean. He wouldn't be able to be around others, probably causing infection. And he laid there in order to have some sort of mercy shown to him by those who had all that he needed. But there was none. There was no mercy shown to this individual. I just want us just for a moment, many times we read past these things, can we just settle in to the emotion of the story? Imagine you live where you live, and at the end of your driveway, there was a guy laying on the ground covered in sores and dogs were licking him clean every day. And yet you walked by him every single day with your nose up saying, man, that guy, I got no time for that guy. I've got no generosity for that guy. Do you think that that reveals something about your heart? I got to get kids in the service more often. <laughs> kids are amen and we're calling for, let's go, right? Absolutely it does. Jesus is revealing something, right? In a moment, we're going to see how this man calls for Abraham to send Lazarus to go and warn his brothers that he, they wouldn't end up in the same anguish. And the response is the telling of the whole parable. I'm giving it away too early, but it, it has application here that, man, he says, no, man, you've had Moses and the prophets to tell you what you need to know, not only about me as the Messiah, but also how you should treat the poor, the alienated, the less fortune, the, 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 those that need justice in the world around you. The, the Old Testament's riddled with the way that we should treat those people. Man, leave the corners of your field for those people. Take care of those in this way and that way. But this individual had all of that that knowledge and he just ignored it right it's revealing something about his heart so jesus moves the story away from talking about their lives to what happens after life the one man both of them excuse me died here it says the poor man is carried up by angels to abraham's side again this isn't meant for us to interpret that we're going to be carried and we're somehow laying with abraham one day this isn't the, the purpose the purpose is jesus was revealing something here there's no indication that uh, there's any type of burial. He was probably just tossed into a common grave with other poor beggars. No burial site whatsoever. But what's interesting is he joins the, uh, the, the crowd of people like Enoch, who was translated to heaven, and Elijah, who ascended in a fiery chariot, that Jesus is kind of giving some honor there to this individual. But on the other hand, the rich man's plight is quite the opposite. He had a burial, perhaps entombed in his, in his family wealthy burial area, right? And he, yet, translated in the afterlife, he is in Hades in torment. Now, 
There's great irony in this reversal. It's a great reversal. I mean, one has one life in this life, and one has another in the next life. And there's a point here in this great reversal, in the reversal of their status, where, where Lazarus was hoping for merely the scraps from the table to maybe for, for, for the rich man to dip his finger into the crumbs and yet let him taste him. And now in the afterlife, Abraham, or excuse me, the, the rich man is expecting Abraham to send Lazarus to go and dip his finger in some water that he might be quenched. And Abraham's response is central to the telling of this story. First, there's a great reversal in the lives of them, in the good things. Second, there's a, 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 there is no possibility of the mobility, either upward or downward, in the afterlife, that on the earth they could have switched positions, but in the afterlife there was no change for them. Here, however, the gulf is fixed in the afterlife for them. There's no changing. Now, I said in the beginning, I want us to be careful to not interpret this. Jesus' intention wasn't that like one day, those separated from all God from all of eternity are going to look on and see all those with God for all of eternity. That's not what he's saying here. And I, don't, I, need be, I think we need to be careful interpreting it that way. That wasn't the intention of Jesus' teaching. But Jesus, man, it's for us too. That, that you and I must consider our actions and how we live right now. Our hands... Our hands do what our hearts believe. Do you know that? Your hands do what your heart believes. Like I say all the time, belief is not what you say. Belief is what you do. That what you really believe is how you live. It's not necessarily just what you say. Sure, you can say it, but proof's in the pudding over a span of time that shows that you truly believe it. You can say, I love my wife all I want, but treat her like garbage for your entire marriage. Do you really love your wife according to Scripture? No. Because words are cheap if they're not followed with action that true Christianity, true salvation, isn't just a matter of mental assent or uh, aligning ourselves with some historical or doctrinal facts. No, it's more than that. Faith reveals itself in actions. This is exactly what James gets to in James 2.14. I just want to read it real quick because it makes so much sense for what we're reading here. What good is it, my brothers, in verse 14 of chapter 2, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What, what good is it? What does it matter? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, do you see any application here? And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them things that they need for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I love you. The old faithful Christian saying, I'm going to pray for you. I'll pray for you. And then we leave and we actually never pray for the person. And we don't help their situation either. That faith without real Revelation in the way that we live and function and breathe according to Scripture is death. That we, might, we, we need to take stock, and this is a calling for us to take stock in our actual faith. Especially, and I will say especially, when it comes to in this parable, Jesus is, te is, is teaching on his way of the kingdom and his view of the poor, the needy, the marginalized, and those who need a voice in, in, in our lives. He's teaching on this. It especially has relevance with the poor and the needy and those that we profess to be followers of Jesus. Do we follow these sayings? Do we follow what the scriptures teach us in this area? Craig Blomberg, maybe you don't know who that is, but he's an a, a author and, and commentator. He says this, The countless professing Christians today 
who give little, excuse me, having trouble today, who give little or nothing to help the desperately poor and sick of our world while spending huge amounts of money on recreation, entertainment, shopping, sports, eating out, cars, homes, with far more than they could ever need or use from frightening, form frightening parallels. The number of supposedly Bible-believing churches that spend equally profane percentages of their annual budgets on facilities, staff, salaries, building projects, and programs merely to service those already saved while giving pathetically small amounts to physically or spiritually needy abroad or at home may even be more scandalous. We can go a long way toward righting these inequities without risking rich and poor trading roles. This is why I love uh, Woodside's posture towards helping those. During this whole pandemic, Woodside started a thing called Woodside Cares, and you as a church were so generous, and we were able to meet the needs of thousands literally in this area. This is why we feel it's so important for you to be in a, in a life group that you together can figure out how you can provide not only needs physically, but needs spiritually with the gospel to your area of influence and your neighborhood and your places you do life so that you can actually functionally do that with other communities. This is why when you're generous as a church, huge portions of our budget go to places around the world that are helping people with human trafficking, to human needs, to foster care and adoption, to, to all kinds of different areas and helping people and rescuing young girls in India and all these different things because we feel that God has called us to do this, that we might build bridges of love that can sustain the weight of the gospel. And we want to be a generous church and we want to be a generous people. But the way that we live in this life is a revelation of who we truly are in our heart of hearts. So not only moving on in verse 27, revelation has been given to direct us. Look what it says in verse 27 as he continues in this parable. He says this, and he said, then I beg you, Father, this is the response of the rich man to Abraham, to send him to my father's house. So you notice he can't even say his name. He knows who Lazarus is. He's still even in his own pride. Can you send him? For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, this is one of the keys. The rest of these verses kind of revealed the whole parable. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So, Revelation has been given to direct us is what we see here. Going back to Jesus' story, we find the response of the rich man, it's quite interesting, right? He realizes that his eternal position is fixed. There's no moving it. There's no changing it. So he begins to think like, man, what about my brothers? I have family that need to hear this. I have, I have a family that needs to know about where I am and what's happening in my life. I need you to send Lazarus. Go send Lazarus to tell them, man, if they see a dead guy come back to life, surely they will change. Surely they will listen. Do you notice that the rich man, even in his afterlife, is treating and viewing Lazarus as his servant? Go send that guy to do my bidding. And Abraham's response in verse 29 is really telling. Effectively, he tells the rich man this, that he won't send Lazarus back. Instead, they need to listen to Moses and the prophets, essentially the Old Testament, to 
direct them. When he says Moses and the prophets, he's, he's saying the Old Testament. Moses would have been a representation of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets would have encompassed most uh, of the rest of the, the, of the Old Testament. So with all that is written in the law and all of the prophets, minor and major prophets, all of that reveals who Jesus is as the, the kingdom, or excuse me, as the king, as the Messiah. And it's saying that reveals that not only how you should treat the poor and the marginalized, all of that has already been revealed in the word of God, but you pick and choose what you want to read, what you want to apply. He says they should consult and act upon what they already have. Read the word of God that you already have. You see, the Pharisees were rejecting Jesus as Messiah. And what he's saying here is all of the Old Testament, all of the prophets, all of the law point to the Messiah, me, Jesus. All the things that are revealed in Christ, they didn't want to see it, they rejected him. And he's saying, man, it's not enough. They already have the answers to what you're looking for. It's revealed in the law and the prophets. Maybe you've heard this illustration. I want to read it for you real quick. It's just kind of funny, but not. But this is what Jesus is saying. Maybe you've heard this before. A man was stuck on a roof during a flood, and he waited. And as the waters rose up, he began to pray to God for help. Oh, yeah, it's a good option, right? We go to God first. Like, God, would you help me? Uh, there's a flood coming, and I need some help, right? Soon a man in a rowboat came by, and the fellow shouted out to the man on the roof, Jump in, I can save you. The stranded fellow shouted back, No, it's okay, I'm praying to God. And he's going to save me. So a rowboat went on, and then a motorboat came by, and a fellow in the motorboat shouted, Jump in, I can save you. To this, a stranded man said, No thanks, I'm praying to God, and he's going to save me. I have faith. So the motorboat went on, then a helicopter came by, and the pilot shouted down, grab this rope, and I will lift you to safety. To this, the stranded man again replied, no thanks, I'm still praying to God, he's going to save me, I have faith. So the helicopter reluctantly flew away, soon the water rose above the rooftop, and the man drowned. Standing before God, he finally had his chance to discuss this whole situation. At what point he exclaimed, I had faith in you, but you didn't save me. You let me drown. I don't understand why. To this, God replied, I sent a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? <laughs> it's kind of, you know, funny, but it's true. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in this moment, to the rich man, you had all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament, and you ignored it all. All that was revealed about me. The same is true for us today. We have an amazing gift in the scriptures, the word of God, even beyond what Israel had and the Jews had at that time to instruct, lead, and guide, encourage, rebuke, and build us up today. And yet, how much relevance do they have in our life on a daily basis? Let's just take a poll real quick. How many of us are entrenched in the word of God on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, maybe just a monthly basis? How much relevance do they have in our own lives and showing and instructing and teaching and directing us in everyday life? The fact of the matter is this, that what are we doing with what we have right now revealed in the word of God? Is the Bible something we ignore or refuse to study, believe, or obey? Do we just give lip service to the Scriptures? But in our belief and walk, we actually walk contrary to the Word of God? I'll just, I'll just be completely frank with you. What I have seen in some Christians in this season 
it, it saddens my heart. That there are clear things from the word of God of how we should conduct ourselves in the world. And yet, my, my views are more important than what the word of God says for me and how I should conduct myself with other people and how I should live and how I should lay down myself. That many times, like the Pharisees of that day, they, we cherry pick. I like this one, but I don't know about you. Man, there's many times I just want to tear certain pages out of the Bible because it's really hard to function in that way. It's really hard for me to live in that way. But what's revealed to us in the Word of God is what we're called to live. I love the way D.L. Moody says uh, this, the American evangelist. He says this, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And how good is that? I remember my, my pastor wrote that in my first Bible when I went away to a seminary. Like, man, sin, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And many of us as followers of Jesus are just living in ways that we want and really the word of God doesn't have a lot of relevance to the way that we conduct ourselves in a lot of ways. And it goes on in the next, um, the, the last couple of verses. And I want to say too, I struggle with this as much as maybe you do. There's a lot of things in the Word of God and the way that I should interact with my spouse, the way I should instruct my children, the way I should instruct myself with those who don't like me or say things that are nasty to me or whatever it is. But man, it's challenging, but God calls us to live it. Uh, the last couple of verses, we see this. What will you do with what God has revealed? So he says in the last couple, in verse 30, and he said, no, no Father Abraham. <laughs> Sorry, bud. Like, I'm here and I want to tell you what to do. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. Like, if they see a dead guy standing, surely anyone will repent, right? And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Mic drop. He's like, they've had all this time. All has been revealed. And he says, man, it's a call in this text, a calling out of the Pharisees and the religious elite of that day that they have been instructed for all of this time about who Jesus is and how they should live, and yet they live how they want, cherry-picking what they want and rejecting Christ. This is the sorrow of the story. The rich man just will not believe that the scriptures are sufficient for his brothers. He, he just rejects it. He believes they need a miracle so he responds by saying, no, someone needs to go back and help them. And John Calvin uh, shares an amazing uh, thought on this. He says this, some would desire that angels should descend from heaven, others that the dead should come back out of their graves, others that new miracles uh, should be performed every day to sanction what they hear, and others excuse me, and others that voices should be heard from the sky. But if God were pleased to comply with all of their foolish wishes, it would be of no advantage to them. For God has included in his word all that is necessary to be known. And the authority of this word has been attested and proved to by authentic seals. We have it all in the word of God. And Abraham's answer was clear. That, man, they're listening to the scriptures the person coming back from the dead would have no advantage for them. This is the powerful point, that believing and following the Messiah is never about how much knowledge you have, but the disposition of your heart. 
These people that he was talking to had all of the knowledge, all of the access to the Torah, all of the different things, all of the wealth, all of the, everything they needed to see Jesus and follow Jesus, but yet they didn't. They had all the right answers, and he's revealing that it's not just about that. They refused to see Jesus. They refused to follow Jesus. And I'll tell you this, that there's a point here for us, that Jesus is challenging us by asking us what we're going to do with what God revealed, namely, in his scriptures. Like, what are we really doing with it? What are we doing with what's been revealed? Are we walking in obedience? Are we doing justice? Are we loving mercy? Are we walking humbly with God? I mean, first, I'll just say, because I don't know who's watching today on Facebook Live or who's even sitting in the service. As we look at the final application here, it dictates that all of us have to repent of our sins and, and, and follow Christ alone to save us. That, that there's not enough belief, or excuse me, there's not enough doing in a person that morality cannot trump immorality, that the only thing that can is that Christ crucified, him dying, him raising from the grave, and being in our place that will satisfy God and will give us a new life in, in Christ Jesus. So I don't know who you are maybe today watching or who you are in this room. The thing that it dictates is that, man, our belief in this life will determine our life in the afterlife. And it's through Jesus. It's not about that I do enough and I have enough. Man, we see that in the Pharisees. It's that my faith is placed solely in Jesus who lived the perfect life, which I get, who died the perfect death, which I get, and now I get him for all of eternity. That is our only hope. And secondly, man, it calls us that if we have believed in the good news, that we should be changed and we should be about the redemptive work of God that Ephesians 2 we love 8 and 8 8 and 9 but man 10 calls us it says that not only are we saved by grace not by works but it says that we are we are we are saved in order that we might fulfill the works that God has before planned for us to actually live and do right and these good works would be things like caring for the poor being merciful to those, those who are broken and sick and despondent, alienated, despised, and weak, as see, see in the parable. It, it, it talks about what we should do with our money, how we should respond in times like this and in these times, right? Like, I, 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 I feel as it would be amiss if I just passed over all that's happening right now and we're talking about today that I wish that more people would read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and, and we would live that way in correspondence with other people, that love is patient and it's kind, that Jesus, uh, through the apostle Paul, says that this is, everything else will pass away, but love stays and we should live by love. This isn't actually a marriage passage, even though it's used for that often, that love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy and boast, it's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It's not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I, I, I would call more believers in Jesus. I mean, even, I don't know if you were on last night, uh, Facebook Live with Pastor Chris, that in this season... Um, starting next week, we're going to ask everyone to wear a mask coming to church because that's what our leaders have called us to do. And it's pretty clear in Romans 13 that our job to follow 
um, those around us, that they've been put in place for our good. And while we may disagree with the way that they have called us to do and live in the same way, God has called us to put ourselves in subjection to those over us and respond in honor to them in this time. And I would call us to go home and read Romans chapter 13 and see how it doesn't apply to our lives and maybe ours. I have my own beliefs in all that's happening today, but my, my own preference does not trump what the word of God shares for me and how I should respond. And so are we people that read the word of God and say, man, the word of God is what trumps my life and allow that to reveal where our heart and our soul is. And may that dictate how we live every single day. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.